We'll turn to God's Word um, this morning to Isaiah chapter 5 and the first uh, seven verses. Now Isaiah, he was an amazing communicator. We can't deny that. We can't say anything other than that. Um, His power to communicate a message um, is humbling. In a few words, this master uh, could paint a picture. He had an ability to draw a painting even with his words, to draw a reader in, even to what he has to say. He was prophetic. And he was very often poetical, even as he is in this little passage. But he was always powerful, a powerful speaker. One commentator uh, said concerning Isaiah, regarding this particular passage we're going to read this morning, he says, For exquisite beauty of language and consummate skill and effective communication, this parable is virtually peerless. Isaiah 5, it's known as the parable of the vineyard, but this morning I'm going to give it a message, great expectations, and that might become clear even as we work through it. A little play on that word of that uh, uh, work called Great Expectations. But we'll read this little uh, parable together and then uh, comment upon it as we work our way through. And God's word reads, Now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved, touching his vineyard. My well-beloved have a vineyard in a very fruitful hill, and he fenced it, and he gathered out stones thereof, and planted it with choicest vine, and built a tower in the midst of it, and also made a wine press therein. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes, and it brought forth wild grapes. And now, inhabitants, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard, What could have been done more to my vineyard that I had not done in it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, it brought forth wild grapes. And now go go to, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge thereof, and it shall be eaten up, and break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down. And I will lay it waste, it shall not be pruned nor digged. But there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah, his pleasant plant. And he looked for judgment, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry. And then the remainder then of chapter 5 goes on even to expound six woes. Um, that uh, Isaiah wanted to share. There was a woe in verse 8, verse 11, verse 18, verse 20, verse 21, and verse 22. You can have a look at those later um, at your own leisure. But I want to focus just on the first uh, seven verses together. And I stand before you this morning, and I'm not sure why this message, I perhaps have preferred maybe a slightly more uplifting passage even this morning, but perhaps it's because the church has been involved an outreach. Um, we were involved in an amazing journey even this past week. Um, we've had many good outreach events even within our own fellowship at this time where the gospel has been sounded forth and sounded forth plainly and clearly. And the church has been growing, but Satan doesn't take a rest. The evil one is always busy. I don't, even as I stand before you this morning, believe that pastor's illness is even by chance at this crucial stage, even in his life or in the life of our church. We could be under attack. And this is why I think I've been led to this passage. We pray for him for his recovery, but Satan, I believe, is always active 
He's seeking, even as a father of lies, even to plant lies, even within a fellowship, to destroy, to damage. And I would suggest, even perhaps at this time, he may already have uh, been planting lies, half-truths, as he is that father of lies. And if they're not uprooted, um, they will grow and cause harm. So let's just walk with Isaiah through this little parable um, together. And as we start the parable, Isaiah reveals his heart here. He reveals his relationship, his heart relationship with the Lord as this little parable begins. Because he says, Now will I sing to my well-beloved, a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. And it's good to sing some good theology contained in songs and also some bad theology contained in songs. But here, Isaiah, he sings a parable about his Lord. He speaks about the Lord in terms of great affection. He calls him as well-beloved. And I'll let you into a secret in verse 7 that reveals who this uh, well-beloved is, this person who owns this vineyard. In verse 7 it says that the vineyard of the Lord of hosts. And this reveals to me that Isaiah speaks of his Lord as his well-beloved. It reveals to me that um, the closer we are in fellowship with God, the more radiant his beauty would appear to us. And Isaiah here is revealing his close walk, his close relationship, his close fellowship with God by calling him beloved. And sometimes our language can betray us, but here Isaiah's language is revealing a heart of love for his Lord. But Isaiah's heart also draws us in in this passage. This is a love song in many ways. And people like to see behind the curtain. They like to know what's going on in someone's heart and going on in their lives. Should it be a soap that we would happen to watch? Um, we don't watch them in our house, but perhaps some are interested in that. Perhaps it's some celebrity gossip. Perhaps it's a good story. Um, or perhaps it's a passage that's in the Bible. We like to see behind the curtain. We like to see what's going on. We like to know what's happening. And what is this man going to say to us about his beloved? And to me, firstly, um, it reveals a great preparation. I don't know. If this wasn't working for Matthew, it might not work for me. But I'll just fire these up here. It reveals a great preparation. This was a good vineyard. And great preparation was made for it. And it says here, My well-beloved hath a vineyard and a very fruitful hill. And he fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof and planted it with the choices of vines and built a tower in the midst of it and also made a wine press therein. So we are planting some potatoes at home and many other gardeners and farmers are busy at the minute um, getting the crops of silage and in and all the rest. And we know that if we are to expect a harvest, there's a certain amount of work and preparation and provision needs to go into it. So uh, this uh, vine dresser, this owner of the vineyard is no different. And we see here that it belonged to a loving person. This vineyard belonged to someone who cared for it. He's referred to as my well-beloved. We see that it was situated on a prominent hill. It was a fruitful hill, it says there in the scriptures. And it says it's a place where it would receive the sun all day, a high place where the sun would shine on it as completely through the length of the day. So it was a place that was well situated um, even for uh, producing fruit. It was planted in productive soil. It's called a fruitful hill. The soil was good. It was fertile, well-drained, and that which would be able to bring forth uh, good fruit. The ground was carefully prepared. It says in our passage that it was dug up and the stones were cleared. All the obstacles to growth here by the vine dresser had been removed. The hard ground had been removed and the stones had been removed. So there was no impediment here for growth um, of, this, of these vines. It was planted from good stock. Um, it says here that it was planted from the choicest vine. These were the best vines available 
that were being planted even within this vineyard. It was protected from predators and thieves because it was fenced around about and it had a tower in the midst of it uh, to watch for predators that might come and damage the vines. So uh, it was a great provision made here for this vineyard. There was even provision made for the fruit to be processed. It says that there was a wine press made in it. Now this was hard labour. Wine, wine presses were generally dug out of the solid rock and that's hard labour to build a wine press um, even for uh, the harvest that was expected. And it was hewn out of the solid rock. And also patience. There was great patience um, exercised by the one involved in preparing this vineyard because it, uh, a vine doesn't just uh, give a harvest in the first year after the, the grapes or the vines are planted. It usually takes a year or maybe two or three before there's any fruit comes forward. So there's a level of patience. Um, we have to wait before we can see fruit appear usually when a vine is planted. So there's great patience and great care and great provision went in to planting this vineyard. Nothing was spared and everything needful uh, was done for it. Um, there was nothing more that could be done for it. So what possibly could go wrong, you might ask, as you read through this passage, what could go wrong? This vineyard had the perfect gardener, it was the best plot of land, and it had the best plants in it. So what possibly could go wrong? This was like inviting Monty Don to your own home and saying to him, would you sort this garden out for me? There was nothing that could possibly go wrong here. It was going to be the best garden in the street if you'd done that, or maybe Capability Brown or some of these other people from a, a previous generation who were known um, even for their great skill. Nothing could go wrong here, or so we would think as we read through this passage. But because of this great preparation then, there was a great expectation, or a great expectation, an expectation of grapes and harvest. Our passage goes on, he didn't do this to pass time. The gardener wasn't doing this. He expected something from this vineyard. This wasn't just a, a labour to pass his time and while away the hours. He was expecting the harvest of grapes. He was looking for fruit. And he looked, says in verse 2, that it should bring forth grapes and it brought forth wild grapes. Now this was a great expectation that very quickly turned into a terrible disappointment um, from this vine vineyard owner. He had put in lots of work. He had done lots of preparation. He would be expecting a real bumper harvest here of fruit. Uh, this is the first shock of the story as we read through it. It brought forth wild grapes. And you might say that's uh, bad enough but it's actually worse than that. Um, I looked this passage up on the Blue Letter Bible website, which lets you look at the text behind the English and gives you some insight into what some of the words mean. And this word for wild grapes isn't simply just bad tasting grapes uh, or a grape of a lesser quality that might still be useful. And I can prepare my kids to be <laughs> telling this around the dinner table, but the actual word that's used here literally means stink fruit or stink berries. These were dangerous poisonous fruit, and they actually smelt bad. They actually polluted the atmosphere um, with their very presence. So it wasn't uh, just that these were uh, grapes that were produced of a, a lesser quality. They actually were uh, quite pollutant, quite dangerous and poisonous even to, uh, even to uh, the people. Anybody that would even be near them would smell them, or if they partook of them, they would be uh, very, very ill indeed. Now, I spent a, a little bit of time trying to repair my phone yesterday. Um, it broke. Um, I damaged took it apart, tried to replace the screen on it. I damaged a, a little part, I didn't realise this, when I was doing it, and put it all back together again. And I was a, a, a tad disappointed when I got it all put back together that there were certain bits of it not working, and I thought I had done a good job, but there were parts of it not working. I was disappointed when I put that effort, put that time into fixing something. Um, I'll not maybe try it again because it wasn't successful, but it was worth a go. Um, I was... Uh, 
hit with a level of disappointment in trying to do that there. Um, but imagine feeling you'd spent two years of work, hard, diligent labour, uh, hard work trying to get these vines to produce fruit. Um, vines are hard to look after. They need daily care, they need uh, daily pruning, they need daily uh, weeding. This man would have gone out every morning and spent the day looking after the vines. And instead of juicy grapes, he got these stink berries. The great expectation, they literally turned sour before his eyes. So after the great preparation, the great expectation of a harvest, there came a great investigation. What went wrong? This should have been a bumper harvest. This should have been a, a great pile of uh, fruit that would have been gathered from these vines. There was a great investigation. What went wrong? Verse 3 says, And now, inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard. Basically, he's asking the question, judge, whose fault was this? Was it mine as a vineyard owner, or was it the vine's fault? Verse 4 says, What could have been done more to my vineyard that I had not done in it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes. The vineyard owner here calls on the inhabitants of Jerusalem. He calls on the men of Judah to answer him. He asks him a question. They were witnesses to all that happened. They saw how the gardener, all the gardener had done over the last couple of years. They would have seen him lovingly go out each day to tend and to labour in the vineyard. And he asked them to tell him, what more could he have done? What more could I have done? Did I forget to do something that I should have done that these grapes have produced bad fruit? Of course, it's a rhetorical question. We, we know the answer. Uh, there was nothing that he could have done. He did everything. He did it all perfectly. The fault didn't lie with the husband man, but the problem lay, indeed, with the vines themselves. They could express their own will, and in doing so, they exposed rotten stink fruit. It sounds familiar. So, this unexpected and out unwelcome outcome begs the question. There was great devastation then occurred. What was the vineyard owner going to do about this situation? He had the power over these vines. They were his. Um, he had chosen them. He had planted them. He had cared for them. And verse 5 says, And now go to. I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I'll take away the hedge thereof, and it shall be eaten up, and break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down. And I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned, nor digged, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. A great devastation was coming. And we can understand this response after this man's toil. Uh, for a long time he had toiled to see fruit and there was none. There was nothing left undone that he should have done. And he had received something worse actually than no harvest. He had received something worse even than a poor harvest. He had received a harvest of foul-smelling berries. So he says, I'll break down the walls. He turned his back on them and let these vines even go to waste. But here comes the right hook in the passage. Up until now, these readers um, would have been listening to this story. They've been nodding their heads along. They've been shaking their heads in disbelief um, at the fact that these vines haven't produced good fruit. They've been going, yes, pull them up, pull them up. We agree with you. We'd even help you. Tramp on them. They're good for nothing. These vines, rip them out, just like the poisonous weeds they are, but the right hook is let loose, the killer punch if you like, because we read in verse 7, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his pleasant plant. 
the cheering would have stopped at that. Uh, they would have looked at each other and said, that's us. He's talking about us here. Their faces would have gone red, perhaps with embarrassment, perhaps with anger. But this is the great devastation that was faced. This is the great revelation now that the Lord himself even makes. Just like Nathan the prophet confronted David even about his sin with a story of stolen sheep. Here Isaiah draws his listeners in with a masterful parable here. He draws his readers in uh, with this parable and then he says, you are the rotten vines. Now that idea of Israel being a vine is common in scripture. Psalm 80 verse 8 8 and 9 says, Thou hast brought the vine out of Egypt. Thou cast out the heathen and planted it. Thou preparest room before it and didst cause it to take deep root and it filled the land. These people of Israel that were planted as this vineyard were transplanted from Egypt. They were taken from that land um, of bondage and they were a good vine. They were a good vine from good stock. They were descended from Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and they were been planted in this land. The heathen had been cast out and this was the vineyard that the Lord was talking about. Jeremiah 2.21 says, Yet I have planted thee a noble vine, holy a right seed. How then art thou turned into the degenerate plant of a strange vine unto me? Asking the same question even as this passage says unto us. This parable speaks of the impending judgment that the Israelites faced during the Babylonian captivity. And Pastor Lyle obviously will be sharing uh, tonight uh, the larger story because it didn't end here at this parable. There's much more even to say about that nation. But surely, as we look at this parable, it stands as a caution um, to everyone um, to ensure that it doesn't become our story. It was the story of Israel, how God had treated Israel, but we must be cautious uh, as we look at it that it doesn't become even our story. Individually, as churches, and even as a Western church, even in the world uh, that we're in, we all enjoy even the privileges of God, um, the provision of God, but we shouldn't presume even upon his grace. We shouldn't resist it. Um, the privileged and, West, privileged and wealthy Western church needs to take heed. Spurgeon uh, says this about this parable. Has it been so with us? Have we rewarded the well-beloved thus ungratefully for all his pains? Have we given him hardness of heart instead of repentance? Unbelief instead of faith? Indifference instead of love? Idleness instead of holy industry, impurity instead of holiness. As our passage goes on, after all the Lord had done for them, after all he had taught this nation as to how they should behave even to one another and how they should worship even the Lord, verse 7 says, He looked for just, he looked for judgment, he looked for justice among these people. But what did he find? He didn't find justice, he found oppression. But behold, oppression. He looked for righteousness in them. He looked for righteous judgment. He looked for righteous acts um, to other men and towards God. But it says here, but behold, he found a cry. The cries of those being hurt by the sins of others. It's hard to listen to the cry of people who have been hurt. Should that be a child who has fallen, really, and cut their knee? It's hard to listen to. Or perhaps it could be a brother or sister in the Lord who's been damaged even by another. The cries of these people coming up onto the Lord. Instead of uh, grapes, stink berries. And the woes that follow even in this chapter, chapter 5, they describe uh, each of these berries in a lot more detail. And if you have time, you can look at them 
and they don't make really for pleasant reading as to how the Israelites have been treating one another. But as we read this parable, we rightly ask ourselves, uh, we consider all the grace that's been given to us uh, by the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, all the grace that's been lavished on us as the people of God, how it must break the heart even of our Lord if we were to remain unfruitful, or even worse, if we were to be involved in unrighteous ways or hurting others. 2 Corinthians 6 verse 1 beseeches us that you receive not the grace of God in vain. We are to work with the grace that he has placed in us, even to bring about the transformation of our lives, to work out what he has worked within us. And Jesus says to us, from everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. Luke twelve forty eight. The obstacles to God's work and God's grace to transform our lives uh, and our hearts is formidable. Um, it's a challenge. And we must do battle. The world, the flesh and the devil are aligned against the the man of God, the woman of God, the the boy or the child of God. And we have to battle against these obstacles. We must put to death um, these evil deeds so that our fruit would be good. And 2 Peter Peter 1 verse 3 says we have received everything, that means everything, necessary for life and godliness. And yet it's possible in the place of godliness uh, to yield to what amounts to sour grapes. Not the fruit of the Spirit that were described in Galatians 5 that we should yield, but sour grapes. The, displaying behaviour which can pollute even like these sour grapes, the very atmosphere and fellowship um, even of God's people. We could make excuse, excuses uh, for ourselves. It's my background, it's my spouse, it's my kids. It's that other person's fault that's causing me to act this way. But God says in light of his abundant provision that we are even without excuse. Um, I would say let us, and I include myself in that, let us examine our lives and see if there be any wicked way in us, and if necessary even confess our failure to live as we ought. We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing, even in heavenly places in Christ. We have all we need in Christ. There is no secret ingredient that we haven't received yet. There's no uh, special uh, knowledge that we need to receive. We all have what we need to live the Christian life. But this parable... Uh, challenges us with a question that we all have to answer if we are not where we should be even in our spiritual life in our spirituality is it our fault or is it the Lord's because this parable says there's no third option here how far short uh, we fall even of the glory of God Amy Carmichael says what prodigal waste it appears to be to see scattered on the floor bright green leaves and bare bleeding stems in a hundred places from the sharp steel. But of the tried and trusted husband man, there is not a random stroke in it all. Nothing cut away that would not have been a loss to keep and again to lose. How does that apply even to our church, to our country, even to our individual lives? What do we need even to allow God to prune out of our lives? Unkind words perhaps, strife, jealousy, pride, anger, self-centeredness. And we might reply, but ah, hold on a minute, this is the Old Testament. This is not something for us. We're in the New Testament. That's Old Testament stuff. But Revelation 5, Jesus writing to the church in Ephesus, he says, Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, and repent and do the first works, or else I will come on to thee quickly and remove thy candlestick out of its place, except 
thy repent. We take this warning that God doesn't play games when it comes to the purity of his bride. When it comes to our behaviour, when it comes even to our fruitfulness, we're called to be vigilant because our adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We have to be vigilant to maintain the good witness that we do possess by giving no room even to the evil one. There's more to be said uh, on this passage, many more verses contained within it, um, but I'm just for the sake of time going to quickly note um, the root of the problem. What was the root of the problem of the Israelites in this situation? Well, it's stated in verse 24. We didn't read it together, um, but if you want to look at it there, it says that they rejected the word of the Lord and they despised it. This is where the fruit had gone wrong. They rejected the word of the Lord and despised it. How can a nation slide down a slippery slope of sin, producing rotten fruit? How could it happen to me? How could it happen to you? How could it happen to a church? The age-old problem it happens by rejecting the word of God, not allowing it to master us. In this book here, we have words of life. It's not just about reading it, it's about following it. It's about taking its advice, it's about shunning evil and following after righteousness that we might even become fruitful, even unto every good work. So I pray as we've looked at this little passage together, this little parable, um, that you'll take encouragement from it, encouragement to be vigilant, even as to how we live and how we work and treat each other in the Lord's service.